so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. John Dyer to talk about the formative power of technology and how it deeply shapes the way that we see the world around us, including how we read the scriptures. We discussed the newly revised version of his book, From Garden to the City, from Craigle Publications, as well as his new book, People of the Screen, How Evangelicals Created the Digital Bible and How It Shapes Their Reading of Scripture. John serves as Vice President for Enrollment in Educational Technology, as well as serving as an Assistant Professor in Theological Studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's been a technology creator for over 20 years, and his research focuses on the intersection of faith and technology, including Bible software, digital ecclesiology, artificial intelligence, and transhumanism. And now let's join our conversation. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. Last year was kind of a banner year for you of sorts. You had the new edition of From Garden to the City release, as well as your most recent book, People of the Screen, that released with Oxford University Press. But before we dive into some of those books and some of those ideas, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. What drove you to kind of focus your life in some sense, uh, to focus on these really important issues about technology and the formative aspects, and just a little bit about your background? Yeah, thanks for asking. Thanks for having me. I uh, I grew up, you know, I'm in my 40s now, so I grew up in the 80s and 90s. And in that time frame, you know, we had home computers and I I was about 15 when the internet first went public. So those are all in the background of me growing up, but I never really thought about a career. I want to go to medical school, so that's the direction I went. But when I graduated from college, I took a job as a youth pastor for a little bit to uh, to take a little break between going to medical school. And I took a job as a web developer because I had just done enough web development work kind of as just as a hobby, really, that I thought I could actually start making this the way I made money on the side while I did ministry. And, you know, that's what I kept doing. I kept finding myself in situations where I'd be this web developer, but also a pastor. And then eventually I went to seminary. And so I'm doing these two things and they're really two separate worlds for me. One is just a, a fun thing that I can make money on. And one is what I feel like I'm supposed to be doing, which is just ministry isolated from technology. And somewhere along the way, those two things just collided. You know, I had a professor tell me, 
one of the worst things you can do is to believe that technology is neutral. And I thought, that's exactly what I think. I, I really believed that I, I'm going to use this for good. I'm going to be a force for good. And that's all I needed to think about. So that really made me start to read and, and go a little bit deeper. And what I was finding in that little zone of kind of 2005, 6, 7, 8, when YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and the iPhone and version, all this stuff is happening all at once, that there seemed to be two main streams of thought that were either the church is behind and we have to get at it and we have to go as fast as we can, or all this is really bad and going to destroy us. And there really only seemed to be those two options. So I thought there's, you know, like any good writer, you know, I think there's got to be a third way and I'm going to chart it. And so that's, that's what got me into it. So I really have found that these two things that were once separate have become intertwined. And I love getting to both make things and talk about making things. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah. And that's why I know you've been a big influence in my life and my thought, especially in this area, because I think I originally, and I remember even writing some stuff really early on that technology is a tool uh, that it's it's not it's neutral in some sense, and I think you're exactly right. Is and we've talked a little bit about it here on the podcast that technology isn't really neutral, but it's also not good or bad. And so there's some deeper questions, and we can kind of unpack those. But that's one of the things that I really appreciated about your uh, your book. I guess it was your first book. It came out in 2011 uh, from Garden to the City with uh, Craigle Publishing, and that book is really interesting. One because not only you know obviously back in 2001 there are certain technological developments of the day. Uh, there are certain things you're referencing, things you didn't, maybe you kind of maybe foresaw, but other things you couldn't have foreseen at all with technology. And that's kind of one of the great things about having an updated edition is you can address some of those things. Um, but a lot of that kind of speaks to how fast technology progresses and how quickly things change. Um, but as you rightfully note, kind of in this updated edition, the core argument isn't changing. And that's what I really love as you kind of dig into this stuff, is that that argument really doesn't change because one, the Bible doesn't change. Uh, the Bible, um, being God's word, is speaking to these realities, even though it's an ever-changing society, a lot of the principles stay the same. But I wanted to see, kind of as you were thinking through and kind of working on a second kind of updated edition, what were some of the changes that you thought you needed to make, whether an application or maybe some new topics and issues you needed to address? What's kind of the difference between the two? If folks may have read the original version, why would they want to pick up the second? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think in the little preface to the second edition, one of the things I talk about is things that were sort of futuristic have become more mainstream discussion. And the things that were the mainstream discussion are now almost just background things. So what I, what I mean by that is that maybe AI and cryptocurrency, those all existed in 2011, but now they're, they're the center discussion. And then what was the center discussion of you know phones and social media? That's just a background. That's kind of things that we accept, like refrigerators and cars. So there's been those big, those big shifts. And so there were certainly little updates that I needed to make example-wise. Like if I say there's a big difference between a cassette tape and a CD and an MP3, well, now I need to add something about streaming music on that. But I think I also wanted to spend some time just in, in little things that I'd picked up on the long way of, I, as I was rewriting this, I had just decided to do a, a yearly Bible reading plan and I would notice little things that I hadn't noticed before. So some of the little ethical imperatives about, uh, there's a passage in Deuteronomy that says, you know, when you build a house, you should build a parapet around the top so that people don't fall over the edge. And so there seems to be some thing where the scripture is saying, when you're making things, you need to think about how they're going to be used. And then, you know, one of the other ones I think was that if the argument is that that human making in general is theologically good, that it's something that is fundamentally and deeply human, that at the same time, there are some key differences today with the kinds of technology that we're working with that we can't just call it all the exact same thing. 
And so toward the end of the book, I spent some time um, dif- differentiating between you know tools and devices, which is something that Albert Borgman originally made that distinction. And just uh, kind of playing on that a little bit so we can be seeing our world in a different way. So those are just a couple of the examples that we that we changed. No, I, I was really excited, um, one, to have the new one come out and then having the honor to endorse the book. That was a real big honor for me, especially because I've long looked up to you. Uh, you've been so formative in my own life, especially thinking through uh, what is technology? Kind of that f- almost philosophical, I mean, it is a philosophical question. Um, a lot of times we don't talk about in terms of philosophy because it seems so esoteric and disconnected from our life. But really what we're saying when we say, what is technology? Um, is It's a philosophical question. And you were really informative on that, kind of helping me to see kind of these two primary views. And we've talked a little bit about this here on the podcast, but I want to dive in a little bit more uh, since we have you here. But often, I think, especially in the church, but really kind of wider society, we just assume that technology is a tool. It's a tool that we can use for good, we can use for bad. But what really matters is our intent and our our responsibility. We, we, We have moral agency and we say yes and amen to that. But there's a lot more going on. Um, and I think that you reference in the book, like Jacques Ellul and kind of how he kind of helps you to shake you out a little bit. I don't love everything Ellul, kind of his conclusions at times, but I like how he shakes me up a little bit and kind of gets me to think deeper. I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack that because I think for a lot of listeners, yeah, technology is a tool. It's good or bad. It can be used for good or bad, but essentially it's neutral. Why is that really not the case? And maybe that technology has a much more formative and kind of almost discipleship kind of aspect to our lives. What's it about technology that does that? Yeah, I mean, the, the example that I love giving and just, just telling because it's so safe and nobody really gets hung up on it. So if we talk about phones or guns and things like that, it gets us a little bit worried. But when I talk about a shovel, for example, you say, hey, with a shovel, you can change the world. You can dig a hole where there wasn't a hole before. But then I'll always, if I'm in front of an audience, you know, I'll ask them, once I dig that hole, what happens to my hands? And it starts to trigger this thought of that, you know, yeah, you get blisters and your hands hurt. And, and we think of that as a negative thing. But then if we think about doing that over time, those blisters turn into calluses. And maybe that's a positive thing. Or maybe our knowledge of the soil changes and our muscles rechange around that habit and that activity of, of digging holes. And so when we think about it that way, that the, the tool is kind of this conduit between us and the world, and it's, it's shaping both ends of, this, of that, that we shape the world with our tools, and then our tools shape us to kind of paraphrase various authors. I think we can apply that to all kinds of things, and not just us individually, but also our communities. And that when we look at our lives and the way that we live them and the things that are around us, those are um, shaping what's possible and what's not possible. So if we walk to work or bike to work or drive to work or take a train to work. All those, you know, change the social interactions that we have, what we consume, all that stuff. And so again, we're not trying to, you know, in this case, make a moral judgment yet. We're just trying to recognize that our, our life is in some sense kind of bent around these things. And once we come, become aware of that, that helps us to interrogate a little bit more and then think, now, how would I intentionally reorder my life? And this is where I think there's some places in scripture, particularly the Israelite people, where they have this whole culture of, objects and images and rituals that God gives them, supposed to be directing them towards seeing their own sin and God's grace and redemption for them. Yeah, I know one of the things that kind of stuck out to me as I was reading, uh, there's a quote, a rough paraphrase uh, from Martin Heidegger. He used to, he'll talk about technology, specifically that it exists in a web of relations. So now we don't agree on a lot of issues, but I think on that, I thought it was a really good word picture, is that we don't kind of use these isolated tools they exist in a larger culture, a larger context, these web of relations. 
And kind of getting to that point with the shovel, um, for me, it really hit home because of these little toy hammers uh, that my kids have, or they used to have. We kind of got rid of them for obvious reasons uh, as they've grown up. But I remember they would get that little wooden hammer and they would just start hitting things. Everything, their brother's head, my foot, the wall, it didn't matter. Like the hammer was designed to hit things. So it's the old adage, once you have a ha- when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, our friend Jacob Schatzer, uh, we've had on the podcast before, uh, Jacob Schatzer says in one of his books that, you know, he updates that adage. He said, when you have a smartphone with a camera, everything looks like a status update. And I really like that is that there is kind of a formative power of technology that's shaping um, the way I'll, I argue in my work is that it shapes our view of God, shapes our view of ourselves, what does it mean to be human, as well as the world around us. Um, and it has a, kind of that distinct, so it's definitely not neutral in that sense. But one of the things that you do really well from Garden to the City in the book is you talk about these four layers of technology. I think one of the things that uh, is striking about when we focus on technology is we take a really simplistic view. But there's actually a lot of depth and there's a lot of layers. And so I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack those. What are these kind of four layers? You addressed that in the first edition. I know you updated it in the second. But how they help to show us kind of that formative power of technology. Yeah. I'll enter this just by saying that, you know, there's a bunch of different great tools for looking at tools. So there's the media ecology area. That's, you know, Marshall McLuhan. And this is in kind of in the philosophy of technology area. So this is from a philosopher named Stephen Klein. And he just has these these four things that, and he's writing in a pre-digital age. He's writing a little bit more in the industrial age, but it still really works. And so the first layer is just technology as hardware. It's just the physical things that we think about. You know, this is the hammer or the phone, really. It could be either one of those things. So there's objects all around us, even if you're looking in the room that you're listening to or whatever you are when you're in this podcast, um, there's just stuff all around us. But then there's this next layer of technology is manufacturing all the stuff behind the things that we're using that make them, that distribute them, that get them to us. All that stuff is really important. We don't even often see those things. But then there's this idea of technology's methodology. It's it's a way of doing things. And you got at that a little bit even with the, uh, the status update, that there is this, this way of writing tweets or this way of writing updates, or this way of Instagramming that is kind of unspoken. It's often changing and socially shaped. That's also really important for us. And this gets to that um, social usage as sort of the fourth layer where, you know, there are always rules that, you know, in, in some countries we drive on the right side and some we drive on the left side. But there is a way of operating that we have. And so looking at each of those layers kind of helps us see this connection between just the physical good and then all the other things around it, both um, sociologically and also just structurally, that are all shaping us and it at the same time. And they're all moving together at the same time, like you said, a, a web of relations. Yeah, obviously, we could go really deep here and keep going deep. There's so much to unpack, but to kind of take our heads above water for a second and take a breath, I think for a lot of listeners, they may this may be new, some of it may be old hat, but a lot of us are probably saying, okay, so what do I do? So if I do believe that technology is forming and shaping me, it's the way I argue that it's discipling us. It's one, actually, I think one of the primary disciplers um, of all of us, not just in the church, but throughout the, all of society today. How does this getting into kind of the philosophy and the methodology and the ecology of these things, how does that, like, what do we do in light of that? Like, maybe what are some, maybe not checklists per se, because I think that's often kind of gets into, uh, okay, if you do these five things, everything will be okay. I think there's much more complexity to it. But what are some of the things that can help us evaluate the way that we utilize technology, maybe even specifically social media, but even broader than that? 
Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the, the way this book is sort of structured is to walk through the biblical story and to see that we are not ever human if we don't make or use things. That's just part of what it is. So we're not questioning and saying we should get rid of everything, but we're recognizing on, on one hand, just the, the glorious world that we live in. I mean, I think of today, all the things that I put into my sort of lunchbox, you know, I, I, have, I, got, I was able to get, you know, cashews and grapes and uh, carrots and some, some frozen chicken and all these different things that, that would be like the meal of a king from a prior era. So I think just recognizing the world that we live in as absolutely wonderful and that we are blessed with a lot of things is a, is a good starting point. I think starting with gratitude is really important. But then also looking around and saying, what is, what's around me in my life? What is structuring my life? And kind of juxtaposing that with the values that I have. So I know something that I really struggle with is that a phone is so convenient for as an alarm clock. And it's, you know, right by my bed and that's the thing that I wake up to. And it's just so hard not to immediately start, you know, checking and doing stuff with it. And those first 10, 15 minutes of the day that can turn into an hour, you, you kind of blow that whole time. And so there, there may be times where you say, I, I need to switch to just an, an older analog tool like an alarm clock because I really value that that first hour of the day really um, needs to be shaped with, you know, exercise or prayer or whatever it is that you're really valuing. So I think this is what I'm, what I'm kind of in summary going to say is that, look at what do I really think is important? And then how are the things around me possibly working against that or working for that? So if I, if I uh, eat too much ice cream, I shouldn't have ice cream in the house, right? And if I want to go running, I should put the running shoes right by my bed. And if I don't want to check my phone all the time, I might need to put it somewhere else. So if I do that uh, for myself and then I do that in, in community, then I think I'll, I'll go a lot further. I know one of the things that kind of stuck out to me was years ago, there was the Social Dilemma documentary that went on Netflix. Uh, really powerful, a lot of truth in it. I don't love some of the application, like the what's next type of things as a Christian, but a lot of it was just kind of eye-opening. I think it was eye-opening for a lot of people. And one of the interviewees, I think just rightfully said, he said, it's not a question, do you check Twitter in the morning? It's a question, do you check it before your feet hit the ground or while you're going to the restroom? And I thought to myself, and I was like, yeah, that's actually kind of true. And I know for at least me, I've been asked a lot um, and kind of the light of some of the writings and interviews and things like that. It's like, what do you do for, well, for myself, I put, I have time limits on my phone. I love the screen time app specifically on iOS devices, but I, I put have time limits, um, but I also have dark times or downtime. And so for me, and I'm not saying this is perfect. If I actually, I've been changing it and making it even more strict because it's easy to kind of uh, rationalize opening things up a little bit more, or having a little, oh, it's not that bad you know, type of thing. But for me, it's, my phone doesn't allow me on social media, at least on my phone, until like 7.30, 7.45 in the morning, but I get up at 5 or 5.30. So it's a couple hours where I'm just disconnected in that sense, and it's good for me. And I think especially even at night, too, I do the same thing where I have it, it goes dark at about 8.15, like I can't access social media. Does that make it perfect? Does that make me you know, super holy? By no means. Uh, but they are some guardrails to help me kind of have that space and that distance to think and to prayerfully consider and to seek wisdom as we start to navigate some of these things. One of the things that I love is that you take some of these ideas and you've kind of seen that play out in kind of a newer area that may be surprising to folks. In late last year, you had your new book with Oxford University Press come out called People of the Screen, and you're talking about evangelicals and the digital Bible. You referenced early on kind of version. Obviously, that plays a significant part of this. 
But the way that evangelicals, by and large, have been kind of on the front end of a lot of digital technology, specifically with like Bible softwares and digital Bibles and a lot of these things, and you take that with some of the philosophy of technology we've been talking about, that kind of is a unique kind of thing that you've kind of chronicled and kind of walked through. So I'd love to hear a little bit, not kind of, maybe not summary per se, but like what led you to write a book like that, specifically kind of almost interrogating the way that you even, you identify early on, I'm an even, you say I'm an evangelical and I'm writing this. So I, I realize I have some skin in the game here, um, but you're addressing a really kind of interesting topic about the way that we read the Bible actually shapes how we understand it in many ways. Could you unpack a little bit about that and kind of why you wanted to write a book like that? Yeah. Well, back in my um, you know youth pastor days, um, I asked the church if I could get a projector because you know we, half the kids would bring their Bibles, either half wooden, and we would pass out the Bibles. And so, you know, I wanted to get a projector to be able to show it up there. And this is you know this is twenty years ago, so it was it was a little bit of a new idea. But I found as soon as I put it up there, that pretty quickly after that, none of the kids brought their Bibles. And so I thought, man, this is really fascinating that God's word hasn't changed, but that the media we use to look at it changes our behavior and our social things. And so as we got into this app era, I started really wondering, you know, what, what does happen when we read the Bible on our phones? And are the developers who are making this stuff, are they thinking intentionally about this? Are they, are they trying to get us certain things? I thought, well, this would be a great project for a PhD. So actually, when I went to Durham University, this was my project for that that became this book eventually. As I started investigating, just looking at it and thinking about, could I interview developers? Could I come up with some methods for testing this and really getting some actual data in the ways that people read? I started to find that all of these developers were evangelicals. And there's an early era of early Bible kind of computer experiments in the 50s and 60s that was a little bit broader. But once we hit the 80s and the personal computer era, evangelicals take over. And as I'm writing, this is around you know 2016 when the... Um, definition of what an evangelical is started to really get questioned pretty broadly. And so my British advisors said, hey, you, you can't just assume this idea of evangelicals. you got to really interrogate what evangelicalism is itself. So what was really fun about this is that it, it serves as kind of a two-way mirror where in one way, we're, we're asking about um, how did evangelicals come to make this stuff and, and what difference does it make for us who are reading? But then also, what does it tell us about evangelicalism at the same time? So that's sort of what the project's about. And it looks at both you know, the developer side of things and the user side of things. One thing I'd love for you to kind of dig in a little bit, you've mentioned sort of like the 50s and 60s and then really the 80s is where things started to take off. I think for a lot of us, when we think about like digital Bibles, we think about reading Bibles on our phone and that exact example. I mean, you go into any church today, uh, evangelical or not, and likely someone is going to be reading the Bible on their phone. So much so that even a pastor just recently said, you know, open up your Bibles or if you're, uh, if you have your phones with you, go ahead and open that up too. Like, go ahead and open your app. To, we'll be in this passage or whatever today. And so, but it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more than just a digital version of the Bible on our phones. So, I wanted to see if you could dig in a little bit on some of the history. What are some of the developments, even in the '80s and the '90s, that are much more than just a digital Bible? There's Bible study tools, and there's all of these other kind of elements. Can it help us understand that this isn't a new phenomenon? per se, but it's actually probably 30 and 40 years old at this point, uh, where things are starting to become more digitized. And as you said, kind of evangelicals in some sense, kind of leading on that. Yeah. Well, the way I lay out is kind of in four waves. So the first one is this early computational era where people are trying to figure out how to make things like concordances. They are, academics are trying to say, can I look at the 
various verb usage in Greek that maybe is can authenticate a Pauline letter. So they're doing things like that. And that's pretty broad in academia. So I, I kind of refer to that first era as, as academic. And once we get to the 80s, I kind of call it the pastor desktop era, where most of what's happening is, is desktop software, because that's what we have, our desktops. And it's primarily aimed at the pastor. It's, it's a library for him or her. It's someone that um, is trying to put together a sermon and want to do some deep study. And the seminary for which I worked, Dallas Theological Seminary, actually built one of these things. They built one of the first kind of Greek and Hebrew tools that then Logos Bible Software eventually purchased to make part of their tools. And then somewhere in the 90s, we shift to the internet era where there's a bunch of websites with Bibles on them. And that that starts to somewhat, not democratize, but make it available to lots of people where people can you know do quick verse lookups. And so there is a big shift there. And then somewhere in that era, um, in the early 2000s, we have a, you know the mobile era where it really hits the common person. And so there's not as much study app. You know, people like YouVersion would say, we're not trying to make a, a study app. We're really trying to make a daily reading app, which is different. So you have these kind of different, movements. And then maybe there's kind of a fifth wave, I think, now where there's really more narrow niche type applications. You know, there's a lot of audio things going on. There's Bible memorization. There's a lot of little things that's kind of surrounding the core text. So those, those are the big movements, I think. And really that first era is pretty broad. But after that, it's it's evangelicals all the way from the desktop to the internet, to the mobile apps, to all these other ones. And there's just a few um, kind of non-evangelicals making things out there. Yeah, one of the things that we'll make sure to link to in the show notes, not only these books, but one of the things uh, here at the RLC, our editorial director, Lindsay Nicolay, did an interview with the founder of Uversion, and just kind of understanding kind of his background and what, why that happened and why he wanted to pursue something like this. But as you kind of chronicle and kind of give this history of this approach to kind of evangelicals and Bible technology, you describe it as hopeful entrepreneurial pragmatism. That's obviously a big term. And I want to see if you can kind of unpack that a little. What do you mean by that? What is unique about the way that evangelicals throughout kind of this history, but specifically even recently, what is unique about the way that they're approaching kind of a digital Bible market or a digital tool, Bible study tool market? What is it about that kind of uh, hopeful entrepreneurial pragmatism? Yeah, well, I think any um, person who wants to be some kind of sociologist has to come up with a three-word acronym for whatever it is they're doing. So that's part of what's going on here. So hopeful entrepreneurial pragmatism. The hopeful part is you probably talked with your audience before about the two big prevailing views of technology, instrumentalism and determinism. Determinism is technology is really the dominant force shaping society. And then instrumentalism is a little bit more like we have some control over it. I think that you know evangelicals are leaning a little bit more on in that instrumentalist view, but but kind of theologizing it as hopefulness of saying, you know, this is something God gave us and we really should use it for the gospel, for the kingdom. So it's better to use it than to not use it. Um, that's sort of the hopeful part. And the entrepreneurial part really goes back to the roots of, I think, American religion in general in that when people come over to America, they don't have the church and state background. They don't have funding and all of those things. And so American religion has often been very entrepreneurial. You're going to try things to see what works. And they're always experimenting. So that's kind of not just evangelicalism generally, but American evangelicalism. And then the pragmatism part is that we're really often driven by outcomes. I mean, we're really trying to figure out, did it work? That's really the question. And so sometimes we're willing to sort of lower some of our, not really standards, but just high walls. So for example, in the missions movement of the 1800s, 
a lot of times people were willing to work cross-denominationally. They didn't believe exactly the same things, but if they had the same ends in mind, they would go for that. Now, now, sometimes that doesn't work out real well in American politics. Sometimes that can be a little messy when we're purely pragmatic, but in other cases, it can be really helpful. So if, if you take those three kind of strains, you can look at a lot of things like sort of the 1950s neo-evangelicalism in America of the formation of Christianity Today magazine and Fuller Seminary and in the previous era with say Moody and all the things that he did. And then you can even look at the, in the 90s, really pre-pandemic, people starting to experiment with video and satellite churches. And these are often happening just kind of by accident. You know, a church can't get a permit to make a bigger building. And so they, they said, well, what if we just, you know, did video down the street to a mall? And all of a sudden you get multi-site on, on accident because they're just entrepreneurial and they're generally hopeful about what they're going to do. So in this world of, of Bible software, a lot of the developers and people I talked to, they were just going, I, I just wanted to try making stuff. And I found myself the same thing 10 or 15 years ago going, I bet I could make a Bible app. And so if you go to BibleWebApp.com, there's, there's John Dyer's little experiment himself. And I think there's just this natural desire to experiment with it and just to try stuff and to see what you can make. But then there's this other movement of once you've done that, then what's the responsibility? So the Uversion guys are saying, and the Logos guys and the Bible Gateway guys are saying, well, at this point, now that I have this thing and it's it's big, what's my responsibility? And they're asking, what do I want to do with it? And how can I reshape the tools so that it, it maximizes what I think people should be doing with the Bible? Yeah, I think that's where you get into a lot of the ethical questions. And sometimes uh, we almost kind of inculcated that think fast and break things. Uh, kind of mentality of, you know, we'll just do it. Can we do it? We should, let's go ahead and do it. And then we'll kind of deal with some of the ethical repercussions after the fact. Um, But one of the things we've tried to do here on the podcast is say, yeah, we want to be hopeful. Yeah, we want to be, we want to try things. We want to be kind of opportunistic in some sense, but also to kind of keep some of those ethical standards um, at at the top and the the forefront. And you see this, it's really broader. um, And you would know best of anybody as you've studied all of these things, it's even broader than just kind of evangelicals in some sense is kind of technology in general. We went through these seasons of um, kind of massive growth and innovation, and we'll just we'll just do a whole bunch of stuff and kind of see what happens. And then even in recent years, we're starting to say, oh, well, the ethics matter. We see this in the AI movement. It's like, we'll just kind of do anything. And now it's like, actually, there's some real world harm uh, bias and what is happening when we utilize these tools. And we see that, I think, uniquely um, in kind of our subset of the world and evangelicalism. One of the things I wanted to kind of pick your brain about on that topic, I know a lot of times, and this is kind of a debate in the classroom amongst professors um, about, you know, utilizing technology in the classroom. Um, There's also a lot of times I've talked to a lot of pastors that start to wonder. I don't think many of them are kind of like anti-reading your Bible on your phone. Um, Some people are probably a little bit like print only. That's, you know, the way God gave it to us type of thing. And I think there's some truth to that. But did you come across any like distinct differences maybe in the way that we approach scripture or the reading and studying of the Bible in that kind of shift between print and kind of digital or analog and digital? Like what are some, I guess, the good and the bad? Because I assume it's a mixed bag. I assume that there's some benefits of having that. But what is the different, how is it shaping us to engage with scripture digitally versus something in a more analog form? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there's all kinds of little things happening. I think one of them that's really interesting is that, you know, when we think about previous technologies, like the scroll to the codex and the codex to the printed Bible, each time we left the old technology behind, but it seems like in this case, 
we're not leaving the old technology behind. So it's more of a multimedia approach to the Bible. So people are listening to the Bible while they're reading it, or they're doing a mixture of things. And when I would ask different people what they do, they seem to have a good sense that maybe their printed Bible was really good for devotional, kind of quiet reading, longer reading, but their phone was great for lookups and devotions and kind of reading in the line at Home Depot and stuff like that. So they seem to have a, a, a ability to differentiate. And yet when I ask them, you know, what do you often choose? They would often say, well, I choose whatever is the most available. So I say that people's um, favorite version is not the NIV or the New American Standard or ESV, but it's the NAB, the nearest available Bible. That's what they often choose. And so then when it comes to the actual like implications of that choice, one of the experiments I did was I would have big groups of people, you know, half of them would read on their phone, half would read in print, and then I'd have them go home and do a Bible reading plan and report all this data back from a bunch of different churches. And so a couple of the things that were really interesting in this, in that it did seem like comprehension wise, there was a difference between male and female. So men tended to have a little bit more to struggle with comprehension when they read on screen. So that was a little interesting finding. At the same time, men tended to be more likely to finish a Bible reading plan on their phones. So it seemed like maybe that's uh, indicative of a little tighter relationship with their phones, perhaps. So that was one thing. But then I think for me, the really interesting one was when it came down to interpretation. So I had them read Jude because you know no one reads Jude. So it's just unfamiliar enough that it could be a good practice text and it wouldn't mess anything up data-wise. And so I asked them these two questions. I said, what, what do you think Jude was about? And then what do you think, uh, how, did, how did reading this make you feel? And so when I asked them this, what I found was that there was this pretty stark difference between the phone and the print readers. And remember, in these groups, I'm just asking them to read on the phone that they have or the Bible that they have. So this is their own thing. It's not, none of that stuff's affecting it. They're just reading what they have. And so when I asked them this question of what Jude was about, the print readers tended to more emphasize this is about God's judgment for sin. And that, that's certainly in that text. When I would ask, ask the phone readers the same question, they would say, well, I really think this is about God's faithfulness to his people, which is also there. But then when I asked them how they felt, here's where they, they kind of flipped and went in the opposite direction. The print readers that said, this is about God's judgment, they said they felt encouraged by reading this text. And then those same phone readers that said they felt like it was about God's faithfulness, they said that they felt discouraged and confused afterward. So just like, oh man, what in the world do you do with that? And this is where, you know, that's what the data said. So the, the, the you know, you can do the p-values and all that sort of fun stuff to figure out. That's what it said. So then I, I have to say, what, how do I interpret that? What do I think is going on there? Why is that? And I think possibly what's happening is that, you know, when you go on any social media platform and you see what kinds of verses people share, they tend to be kind of positive. They're more MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism, to use another three-word acronym. They're usually pretty positive. You know, they're about God's faithfulness and the joy of the Lord and salvation. We kind of don't find those verses in Isaiah where God is stomping on the entrails of the wicked. You know, those are just not things people tend to share very often. Um, We don't share a lot about judgment and, and that kind of thing. So the kinds of things we see on our phones typically are more positive. And yet, most of us would say that, you know, our phones kind of capture our anxieties. You know, we're often, we use it more than we want to, or when we go on, we see, you know, negative things. And, you know, there's all those kinds of studies about when you see a bunch of people's pictures on a vacation, you feel like you miss, uh, are missing out or something like that. So I think what happens is that the God of the str- screen is really nice, but he makes you sad because we associate so much with that device. So again, this is not saying don't read the Bible on your phone. 
what it's saying is just to be aware of everything else that's going on and what that device means to you. And I think this is why, um, you know, when you go into Starbucks and you read a physical printed Bible, it, it means something to the people around you. But if you read on your phone, nobody cares. It doesn't send any kind of messaging. And so what I often will tell an audience just generally about your phones is that what's on the screen or on the front of the phone really matters. But kind of the back of the phone often matters more than the front of the phone. The, all the messages that it's sending you and the people around you are incredibly significant. And the same thing with the printed Bible. I do think there's a role for a preacher to you know, use an iPad or something like that, but to occasionally hold up that printed Bible. Not because we have a fourth member of the Trinity or because it's particularly magical, but because there is social meaning in that text and that we tend to trust things that are in text in a certain kind of way. And that's why you know, the Bible uses this phrase, it is written, it is written all the time, because it was it was worthy enough to chisel into a tablet. That's, that's how significant this was. So again, what we're thinking about here is how does the medium shape the message? How do my, how are my habits reformed by devices? And it was really fun to see that in data and then to try to interpret it. Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, and that's one of the reasons I, I love, I love this book is that it's, it's just causing you to think differently about kind of the things that we use every single day. Um, I know for myself, and I don't think this is a perfect method by any means, I actually use my Logos Bible software for my reading plan, but I read in my printed Bible. It's also kind of weird that, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, you're a, you focus on technology and ethics and philosophy and those things, uh, but you don't like digital books. And I was like, yeah, a lot of people don't like digital books. But it, it is kind of interesting. People say, well, I actually use digital books for search and reference and things like that. Or when I'm writing, it's really interesting. I will routinely go to the search bar and type in half of a verse, but because I don't remember off the top of my head exactly where the reference is, but I know what it says. And so I'll like, oh yeah, where does it say this? And then, you know, Bible gateways at the very top or Biblia from Logos or these others. Um, so it is kind of interesting the way, you know, to bring kind of McLuhan in, you also have the medium as the message. Um, it is it is shaping us. And that's one of the things, as you mentioned with pastors, um, I hear from a lot of pastors who do this. And I know I when I teach, I don't preach. I'm not a pastor uh, per se. I have pastoral training. But when I'm teaching, I'll often use my iPad for my notes and then use my Bible. And I even do that in the classroom. I'll use my, I'll read from the Bible. But it is interesting to me always when they'll hold up the Bible and you clearly, there's nothing marked and it never gets open, but they'll have the Bible in their hand but they're actually reading it off their screen. I always find that kind of funny. Um, but I do think there is something of saying, no, like we're talking about this written text and kind of the cultural meanings that go into that as well. There's just so much that we can unpack there. One of the things you hinted at, and you've kind of talked a little bit about um, already, is kind of these persuasive design choices. Like there's a, especially when we're talking about design of the Bible, you know, I get a notification, it, I set it, but it's at 8.15 every morning for my Logos Bible app. Don't forget your reading. Or you have these other apps that you use that kind of have devotional plans or they're reminding you throughout the day. But there's also design choices going in in terms of colors and button placements and shapes and fonts and all of this that kind of affects us in particular ways. And it can affect us in good, but also in some negative ways. The interesting thing about you know technology not being a neutral tool is that there is a set of values embedded in these devices and in these systems to encourage us to use them in particular ways. Um, and that can be abused or that can be harnessed for good. But I want to see if you could unpack a little bit about these persuasive design choices, specifically when we're talking about Bible apps and kind of our engagement with scripture. 
maybe some ways that that's not gone well, or also some of the ways that that kind of encourages us to dig a little bit deeper. Like, what is it about those persuasive design choices and technology that's so formative? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's, you know, intentionally persuasive things and unintentionally. I mean, there's things that the developer is, is trying to do. So I think I can give an example of version is that there's this deep fundamental belief among the version guys that when you encounter God's word, it changes you and that the Holy Spirit is going to work through that. And that the more often people are in the scriptures, the more often they're going to be changed. And so they're thinking, how can I get people to do this more often? That's really what one of their fundamental things is. And so when you open up the Bible app, you go, well, why doesn't it go to the Bible? Why does it go to this you know, home screen with you know, verses and plans and friendships and all that kind of stuff. And I think what they would say is that what, what they have found is that people's Bible reading goes up when they have at least one friend in the app. And then they see another time where it goes up again at seven users the last time we talked about it. So they're saying, if I can persuade people to engage in the friend thing, what's going to happen on the other end is that they're going to read more Bible on on the back end of that thing. So that's that's an example of intentional persuasion of, of highlighting features like Bible reading plans and verse of the day and stuff like that. And, you know, uh, some of those those uh, same folks at version would say, you know, some of these things were unintentional. Like I remember asking them when, when you did the first list of, you know, Bible verse of the day, were you thinking about, you know, all these different genres and about different types of theological ideas? And they're like, nah, man, I just grabbed an Excel sheet off the internet, you know, and put it in and then later on went back and, and reshaped it. So sometimes there's that, you know, move fast and break things. And then there's kind of coming back and saying, how do I use this intentionally? And then an, area, an example of something maybe less intentional that was interesting is as I, you know, interviewed a lot of people about how they use these things, the example you gave earlier of, I kind of know that verse, but I want to know exactly where it is, that the digital Bible allows that, that people talked about their small group character changing a little bit because people would look stuff up instead of having this, this answer. I think that reinforces an evangelical ideal that there is an answer and that there is an authoritative interpretation. But then I would also ask some people to talk about their, you know, study Bible app usage. And as I found, you know, that people were not just using, say, um, kind of text-based things like version, but with they had Logos Bible software or She Reads Truth or something like that, they would often talk about how I can know the meaning of the text because I have all these resources. And so it was this, I call it secondary perspicuity. Is it, Perspicuity is this idea that um, I can know the scriptures ap- apart from an authoritative church thing, that the scriptures are knowable by the individual. That it seemed like these, these folks were saying, well, I can kind of know it, but if I've unlocked the right resources, you know, if I got the right app and if I download the right resources, then I can know. And so it seemed to be um, kind of shifting the way that people thought about their own encounters with the scriptures. And I think there's a, an analogy to this back to the earliest study Bibles, like the Geneva study Bible and then the Schofield reference Bible and all these different ones that are going on, that the things that we augment and add around the Bible have been, um, you know, formative, uh, persuasive technologies for a long time. And I'll give you one other one. I think the most persuasive Bible technology that's ever been created is the verse and chapter number system because that uh, let us see the Bible as a set of tweets that we can refer to at a specific time and location. And it's fantastically useful, right? But it uh, it definitely shapes the way that we see and don't see scripture. And so then you saw this movement back to saying, well, let's do reader's editions and let's... Um, Let's be persuasive in the other direction and let's enable this kind of way of re-encountering the scriptures without verse numbers. So that persuasive technology of the verseless printed Bible um, is also a really important tool that we have today. What's fascinating about that, I remember being in seminary and not that I didn't know this, but it kind of dawned on me, I think is the better way to say it, 
Because um, I think if we're honest and we really think about it, you're like, yeah, they're probably the verse and chapter numbers aren't original um, or the red letter text isn't original. Um, I think we would know that mentally, but like we don't always experientially know that sometimes. Um, and so it was really interesting. I remember my um, my professor at the time, it was before all these reader editions came out, um, said, I, I just prefer, he doesn't do a red letter edition. And he said, because in my mind, the red letters made me think that these words were more authoritative than the black ones. But it's actually, as we read, you know, Peter is that these men were carried along by the power of the spirit, um, that all text is authoritative, um, that all text is inerrant in that sense. And that's a kind of a core evangelical belief as well, is that the black letters weren't less or more important than the red or the verse and chapter numbers or the codex going from a letter to a codex. So it's, it is interesting. And I, I have a couple of those readers editions and I've found them useful for certain things. But kind of going back, and I'll, we'll wrap up at this, but uh, when you were mentioning Jude, Jude is such a short letter that it also, even when you read it in print, you can almost see the whole thing at one time. And I think that has a significant kind of bearing on how we even understand it. Because you go to like a book like Matthew, 28 chapters, it's hard to see kind of the superstructure of Matthew because you can't see it all at once. Um, and with Jude, it might, maybe that even kind of affects our interpretation. So there's so much that goes into this and there's so much that could be unpacked here. Obviously, uh, I love talking to you. I've always enjoyed our friendship and there's so much more we could unpack, but we are at a time. So one of the things that I want to encourage readers to do, one is to pick up these two books. I think they're very, very helpful, especially your recent one, People of the Screen. Um, it's a fascinating kind of look at these things. Um, it's not written like a dissertation, just for folks uh, knowing that he wrote this as part of a doctoral project. Um, you did substantive work, and it, you can tell uh, just how much effort you put into this. I encourage folks to go grab that. It's a new book from Oxford. It came out late last year. But you engage a host of thinkers uh, throughout all of your books, ranging from Jacques Ellul, Marshall McLuhan, Lewis Mumford, Neil Postman, and a ton of others. But there's given all of the things we talked about today, I wanted to see if you could recommend a few works, whether it's old or new books, resources that you find kind of helpful, because that's one of the things we want to do here on the podcast is one, kind of take a deep dive um, in 35 or 40 minutes on a, a particular topic uh, with an expert in that area, but then also to kind of come up from air and say, okay, here are the next steps. This is what you can do next. Um, so what are some books, resources uh, that you would recommend folks if they want to dig a little bit deeper on the things we talked about today? Yeah. Well, thanks, Jason. I mean, I think, you know, I think you've got some great stuff that back in your initial AI book, and then I think the ethics book that you've been co-editing right now, I think that's just a really great contribution that's moving us forward in some real specific directions. I think, um, you know, you mentioned too Jacob Schatzer's transhumanism book, which is so nice because it lays out transhumanism and then also... A lot of the things that we're doing today that are pointing us in that direction, those are some helpful ones. One that my students really responded to, though, was Alan Noble's Disruptive Witness. And it's not really this book that is about phones or about Twitter or something like that. It's really just about this, this whole world that we live in and how do we view ourselves and each other. They just found that to be tremendously helpful. And so I would recommend that to anybody as just being a really, really uh, strong one. And then I think um, on the on the practical end, I just, man, I think Andy Crouch is such a gift to the church. And I think really all the things he's done, the really practical things like the TechWise family and life and his um, new, more recent book, that The Life That We're Looking For, is just, just he's always got an, a new way of looking at things and helping us see our world. So he's tremendously helpful. And then if you're looking more to look at, again, this question of, of data, it's great to theorize about it, but what's really happening? I think 
you know, Heidi Campbell is is also another real gift to the church in that she has been at the forefront of all the digital religion studies for the last really 20 years. And so she's just written so many things. I think if you look at her whole catalog, everything in there is really helpful. And she's looking at, you know, not just Christians or evangelicals within Christianity, but she's looking at you know, Muslims and Jews and all different kinds of things that help us sometimes reflect upon ourselves a little bit. So I would say look at both her, you know, theological works like networked theology, and then some of her other things like digital religion, and then some of her more recent work about um, digital creatives and the way the creative power that people sort of like myself have when we make websites like best commentaries and we have these algorithms that determine um, determine things for people. That's a really significant power and she writes really well about those. So those are just a couple I'd recommend. I'm glad you mentioned uh, best commentaries uh, because that was something you created a long time ago, actually. Um, and it's funny because I remember being a brand new seminary student having no idea what I was doing in school, especially in the classroom. They were using terms and referencing books and figures and I was like, no idea. Um, but I remember writing papers and I would actually go to bestcommentaries.com and grab like the top four. Um, and I didn't know what all the little symbols meant. And I didn't know all of these things. But it is really funny. Like uh, I was utilizing your tools and the things that you were creating um, before, well before I knew you. And then even kind of referencing your works and things. And so I just appreciate you. I appreciate your ministry. I uh, appreciate the ways that you serve the church, especially helping her to think deeper about some really, really important issues. Um, but John, just thank you so much for your ministry. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today here on the Digital Public Square. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing, but also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with John and learn more about his works, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing issues of public theology today, as well as to dig in deep on some top technology news. You can learn more at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.